Okay, welcome everybody. We're back at Dorothy's place after a bit of an intermission. Uh, I don't have my usual co-pilot here, Pete Davis. He is busy lately, but sends uh, his warm felicitations around this conversation with Joshua Corey, um, whom I just discovered through a wonderful LitHub article he did. I will explain that he is a poet, novelist, translator, and critic. His books include the poetry collections Severance Songs and The Barons, a collection of critical prose, The Transcendental Circuit, Other Worlds of Poetry, and a new translation with Jean-Luc Garneau of Francie Ponge's first book of prose poems as Partisan of Things, and uh, two novels. The first is Beautiful Soul, an American Elegy, and the, one, the newish one we'll get to today called How Long Is Now? Uh, welcome, Josh. Thank you, Elias. It's uh, very good to be here. Great, great. You know what? You're the first writer artist, artist of any kind we've ever had on this podcast. I don't know what that means because you would think, with my background, I would have not, you know, uh, overlooked that rather important dimension in my life. But anyway, as a kind of an obligatory gesture, I have to say it's so great to have a writer, a creative person. Um, and our usual mix of kind of activists and, you know, social science types and all that, political types, um, great, great to bring in someone who has a rich uh, cultural context. So before I ramble on, Josh, tell us a little more about yourself and what you're doing and kind of your, your origin story. <laughs> uh, sure. Well, um, I... Uh... You know, I started out as a poet, and I guess in many ways I am still primarily a poet. I, I grew up in uh, the East Coast, um, but uh, you know, I, I, I inherit a uh, fairly complicated legacy um, as the uh, uh, the son of uh, two uh, uh, very different kinds of Jew. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, my uh, father uh, grew up in uh, the South Side of Chicago, and then Skokie, Illinois. Uh, which is just a couple of miles from where I live now, uh, before he moved to New York. And he you know, belonged to this very uh, assimilated, uh, happy, uh, cheerfully materialistic uh, family. Uh, he was supposed to be a doctor, as every firstborn Jewish son is supposed to be. But instead, he moved to New York. And there he met my mother. Um, and she uh, was the uh, daughter of uh, Holocaust survivors from uh, Hungary uh, and was a survivor herself. She was born in uh, Budapest in 1942, uh, was hidden in the ghetto with her grandparents while her own parents were sent to the camps, both miraculously survived. And uh, so she, uh, after spending some time in the uh, displaced persons camp at Belsen, Germany, Bergen-Belsen, which had been turned into a DP camp by the British, uh, came to this country and moved to the Bronx in the uh, end of the 40s. And uh, so um, I've uh, always felt this dual legacy of, on the one hand, this very American kind of immigrant success story. My father, you know, his father was a, a successful salesman. My father built his own business. Uh, I grew up in the leafy suburbs of New Jersey. Everything was good and wonderful, a thousand points of light. Um, but my uh, mother, um, although a very uh, witty and funny and you know often very delightful person, was shadowed her entire life, uh, I think, by her experience as a survivor, by her parents' experience as survivors, 
uh, by being a first generation immigrant. Um, and she also like moving with my father from New York City to the New Jersey suburbs always, I think, felt like a bit of a, a bit of a fall to her, a fall from Eden. So oh, I grew up oh. thinking that New York City was the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Emerald City, basically. And one of the oddities of my life is I've never actually lived there. Um, so I, uh, uh, <clears throat> I followed a wandering academic life after college. Uh, I moved to New Orleans for a few years, trying to write the great American novel. And when that didn't work out, I moved to Montana with my girlfriend at the time. Um, and then I went to the uh, University of Montana to study poetry, which had always been my kind of, you know, one of my oldest loves. Um, from there, I did a couple years in Stanford's uh, uh, creative writing program, their Stegner Fellowship program. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, by this point, I knew no other life than that of the students. So I went on to Cornell for my PhD. And they finally made me leave, <laughs> you know, after I had a degree. And I was very, very fortunate to land uh, my present position um, at Lake Forest College, just north of Chicago, um, where I've been teaching now for 15 years. Um, and it's a wonderful uh, institution, uh, small, intimate, 1,500 students, uh, wonderful colleagues, and um, I've been able to kind of explore my own interests and, uh, you know, incorporate, uh, you know, more and more uh, fiction, uh, as well as, you know, doing the odd bit of scholarship or criticism uh, from time to time. So that's the capsule Very version. Good. Very good. All right, well, let's, let's um, jump right in the soup here. I mentioned I came across your article on LitHub, which was about um, your book called Hannah and the Master, which is a long uh, sort of prose poem and, and poetry mix a bit, a crestomathy, you call it, rather grand. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, it is a little grand. No, but I, that caught my attention too. And, and this was also... Um, something I wanted to dig into because I have become fascinated with Arat myself, dating back to um, about 2018. I, I had read I Twin in Jerusalem as an undergraduate a million years ago, and the book absolutely flattened me. It just stunned me because I just didn't know much of this history. And that this woman could so powerfully and dispassionately tell the story, uh, it made a huge impression on me. But then I, I didn't continue much around philosophy. However, after the 2016 election, I was thinking, I, I need to go finish Origins of Totalitarianism. It seemed like mm -hmm. a, you know, an opportune moment. And that really drew me back in. I discovered the Hannah Arendt reading group at Bard College and so on. And then I, I saw your piece on the poem and I just thought it was remarkable. It, it just, it struck me that this made so much sense to me that someone would sort of in a creative way muse over this moment in time when you had these two so incredibly distinct figures, you know, um, th this kind of titanic moment between the philosopher and the young student, he, he's 35 or something, she's 18, so she's quite young. Gentile and Jew, male and female, metaphysician, eventually an anti-metaphysician in many ways, you know? Um, someone fascinated by being unto death and a philosopher of natality. 
you know, just yes. how, how extraordinary. You could divide the, the modern world right down the middle there, right, in a way. Yes, yes. So anyway, those are just my first kind of amateur thoughts. But tell, tell me, uh, is that something like uh, what caught you about this moment in, in their histories? Yes. Well, I mean, um, I had long been fascinated by Arendt. Uh, I, hmm. I have a I have a soft spot for uh, difficult Jewish women in general, <laughs> and uh, for uh, difficult thinkers and writers in particular. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, I had loved Arendt for her prose style, actually, yeah. as much or perhaps more than yep. her uh, thought uh, <laughs> for <laughs> a long time. Um, in graduate school. Uh, I spent uh, a great deal of time, probably too much time, wrestling with uh, Heidegger in a couple of different seminars, mm -hmm. uh, you know, reading uh, Zeind und Zeit, being in time very slowly, yeah. twice, uh, <laughs> along with, uh, you know, many of the uh, <laughs> essays like, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the Thing and... Uh, um, the work mm -hmm. of art, and oh, I'm confusing him with Benjamin right now with that title. But uh, anyway, uh, the essays in uh, poetry, language, thought. Yes, uh, that's, that's, that's the English yes. edition, mm -hmm. um, and some other things. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I knew he was an anti-Semite bastard, but I also mm -hmm. was completely uh, captured by his mm -hmm. uh, articulation of this, um, you know, these primordial relationships that seemed to tantalizingly promise, mm -hmm. you know, uh, contact with reality. Mm -hmm. um, I'm someone for reasons of temperament and other reasons. I just, I, I've always just found like the world to be a very mysterious place, uh, politically, economically, psychologically, uh, a history is mysterious, individuals mm -hmm. are mysterious. Yep. Uh, and so I've, you know, sometimes think of myself as a kind of bumbling detective uh, using what tools I can find to try and come up with some kind of uh, narrative that will help me along. Um, so the origin of the book, and maybe I should just, for your listeners, just a little, you know, sort of thumbnail summary of like what the book is about, because yes, it is please. actually about something. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, yes, as you were saying, when she was 18 years old, uh, she was a student at the University of Marburg. Uh, she, uh, you know, came. She was the only child uh, of this, uh, you know, pretty assimilated uh, Jewish family in uh, Königsberg, actually Kant's uh, hometown, mm -hmm. um, and uh, extremely bright. Um, she suffered the loss of her father to syphilis, a pretty horrible, slow death. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, then her mother kind of poured all of her remaining resources into her daughter. She remarried. Um, anyway, uh, she came uh, to Marburg as this. Uh, uh, I, I think she was like many young people, just on a quest. You know, and you know, mm -hmm. who am I? And also trying to understand like the relationship between her her Jewish identity and her German or European identity. And there she fell under the spell, as so many people did, mm -hmm. of uh, the magician of Meskerch, as he was called, uh, yeah. Heidegger, who was making a name for himself as this mesmerizing thinker and speaker. And this was early in his career. This was before he went on to the University of Freiburg, where he gained real fame. Mm -hmm. But uh, so anyway, they became entangled with each other. She was his student. Uh, he was uh, smitten by her. He was married. But, uh, you know, that doesn't stop 
everybody. Um, <laughs> and they had this uh, passionate uh, affair. So uh, that's, that's sort of, you know, that absorbs maybe almost too much attention, I think, from some people. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is uh, pretty irresistible as a human story. Um, that two I mean, people is she is she the muse essentially if there is such a thing of being and time I mean was it is right right around that time he's writing the book is she somehow uh, part of that I don't think so well no? it's if so in a very indirect way I mean one of the maddening things about that relationship at least from Arendt's point of view is uh, uh, you know Heidegger never uh, as far as I know he never once acknowledged her own ideas. Uh, her own work. Um, it was a very one-sided relationship intellectually. Yeah. He was the fountain from which yeah. everything flowed. She yeah. sent him her work even later in life. And uh, mm-hmm. so far mm-hmm. as I believe we know, uh, he never commented on it, never said wow. a word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but Heidegger is very good at silence. <laughs> very good at not, very good at not saying things. The fox. Um, um, yeah. The fox, yes. Heidegger the fox. So, um, so they had this affair and uh, it ended mm-hmm. and uh, she went on with her life. She went to Berlin. Then uh, when the Hitler came to power, she went to Paris. Of course, eventually that was also no longer tenable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the war and she was a displaced person. She came to America. Um, and I think they, they reestablished contact around 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, and she um Perhaps, you know, did she have the right to do this? But she forgave him, his, his involvement with the Nazis. He mm-hmm. was a, uh, you know, card-carrying member, as we say, of the Nazi party, mm-hmm. uh, right to the end of the war. He never renounced that membership. Uh, he was uh, made rector of the University of Freiburg in uh, the 1930s uh, and gave a notorious speech on the inner truth and greatness of national socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and Heideggerians have been trying to explain this away ever since as, yeah. oh, he was naive. He you know, was not a political thinker. Uh, he, uh, his uh, regret is implicit in what is sometimes called uh, in his work, uh, the turn oh, yeah. uh, away mm-hmm. from uh, the kind of existentialist thought of being in time toward uh, a preoccupation with language, right? Mm-hmm. He becomes a philosopher of language as opposed to a philosopher of being. Um, but you know that's all that's all bullshit. I think uh, the man was a Nazi, and I think he stayed a Nazi. Yeah. Um, does this invalidate uh, his thought or its impact or its peculiar hold on many intellectuals, many of them Jewish? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, but in any case, uh, we go back to. It's hard for me to say exactly when, but sometime in the early 2010s, you know, in sort of the mid Obama years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I was following like so many people, uh, you know, the very disturbing information coming our way about climate change. Uh, and I was also taking note of the rise of the Tea Party mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, incredibly racist response to the Obama presidency, um, not to mention some missteps on the part of, you know, Obama and the Democrats at that time. Mm-hmm. And I had this very simple thought, which was, it's, you know, we're in the 1930s, right? We're in the 1930s yeah. all over again. Yeah. Uh, this is Weimar. And uh, what's, you know, different this time is um, we're all Jews. Right. Right. 
because uh, mm. I, I was really struck by what I saw as the the kind of uh, you know uh, the hysterical denial of what was happening mm -hmm. uh, was being very uncannily similar to the reaction of you know many by no means all but by many you know uh, you know assimilated Jewish people into Germany and elsewhere uh, who felt that you know this culture was theirs that they were Europeans or they were Germans. Uh, or Hungarian, um, only to you know be uh, very rudely awakened um, by this wave uh, that came to sweep them away, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about my own. You, you were talking at the top about like how you usually have political thinkers and activists. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a poet. I'm a bookish dreamer. I'm a guy who stares out the window all day. I'm, I'm not very <laughs> useful. Uh, and I began to ask myself, what do I have that's useful? What do I have that might enable me to come to grips in some way with what I think is happening? Um, and I realized that what I had was uh, I'd read a lot of Heidegger. I'd read a lot of Arendt. Um, I read a lot of Adorno and Benjamin and mm -hmm. Simone Weil and Paul Salon. And, you know, I had been fascinated for years with these uh, interwar European intellectuals, most of them Jewish, but not all, um, who uh, found themselves dealing with uh, this absolute catastrophe. And I felt, well, we are looking at another absolute catastrophe. Um, what can I learn? What can I say? What can I maybe, you know, use or reuse to, mm -hmm. to kind of cope um, with the present moment? And out of that complex of feelings, this very, very strange book was yeah. born. Yeah, great, great, very good. But let me set the readers up a little bit as well, reading <clears throat> the cast of characters, essentially, uh, because this is very striking um, to open up this way. You have a list called your Autoris Ludens, uh, which I think means the characters in the play. It's, it's not exactly a play, but that's all right. In order of appearance, they are the wave, the master, a thinker from Germany, alias Martin R., the poet, joint author of this century's suicide note, Hannah, Jew, writer, thinker, lover, alias Daisy, alias R, alias Hannah R, alias Hannah Furiosa. Being the plagiarist, an author, the calibrator, man unthinking, the doctor, more human than human, Joshua, a general, Saint world, assorted titans, replicants, and attendants. So I, I, I'm thinking it's like a mask, one of those Renaissance masks or something, a very, it's a kind of a dream world in a way, you know, this, this wonderful. Yes, yes, huh? no, I think of it as, as a mask. Uh, and, huh. uh, you know, I, I think of it as being uh, in some ways, uh, um, you know, one of the, uh, 
kind of prototype texts or influences here would be uh, Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound. I thought right, so. I was going to ask you. <laughs> yes. Great. Okay. It's, cool. this, great. It's a, it's a this completely unperformable play. Yeah, exactly. About yeah. these, you know, Titanic forces. Yeah. Um, great. You know, in, in struggle with each other. So yes, I love Shelley. Uh, Shelley and Blake are very important to me, um, and Marvelous. they're all over this book. Marvelous. Yeah. On page nine, you have um, uh, a little open forum prose section called Cross the Streams, the Centuries. I wonder if you could read that for us. Sure. Cross the Streams, the Centuries. The master fixes his wing. From his mountaintop, he stows. Past the poet with his hands in pockets, eyes fixed on his shoes. Past Hannah in the lowlands, watching for the wave. The wave, when it comes, that sweeps away everything. Cows, factories, unhappy families, owls, the necessity of caring about owls. The desert jungle leaps in the night of human forgetting. Hannah sits up late in Freiburg, in Berlin, in Paris, in New York. She writes letters to the master that she does not post. The eagle stands on the postmark, single-headed, bearing the symbol of the sun in its claws. The sun we have invited too close to the earth. It presses out the sky. No gods anymore. The poet invites the rivers that flow from every direction to the sea, the beach, the moon. The desert jungle is near. It surrounds everyone's breathing. Not so careful of the type, thinks the plagiarist, who is the poet's secret face. The face of terrified complicity. The ash from Hannah's cigarette. She writes from the night of tears in a language not her own. The calibrator listens at his bulletproof box, listening across oceans for the wave that a poet can name. Its origins as wall, as water, as soft targeted array, as emigrant flesh, mad X of the world. While the master soars, terrible and blind, in the wake of the larger predator named being. Marvelous, marvelous, thank you. Let's see, we're giving the reader only the tiniest tantalizing bits here, but um, I suppose that's all we can do for the moment. I wonder if we could skip over. This is the Hana Aria at, on 92. It's printed in red. You're, you're playful about this. Where does this come from, by the way, in poetry, this use of, uh, you know, um, uh, not underlining, but uh, excise text and red text and so on. What, 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 is, what do we call that? I'm not sure there's a name for it, honestly, although I'm not claiming it's necessarily original. Uh, yeah. uh, certainly there's, you know, there's traditions of uh, uh, poetic erasure, right? Where huh. like a poet huh. will cross out text. Uh, one of the most famous examples would be uh, uh, Ronald Johnston, a great um, lesser known American poet, uh, has a uh, wonderful book called Radios or Radios which is an erasure of Milton's Paradise Lost. So he took, he took an edition of Paradise Lost, I think the first four books, and he blacked out almost all of it. 
and what's left is this kind of amazing ecstatic uh, poem. Oh, amazing, um, amazing, yeah. And then something that comes closer to visual art would be Tom Phillips' uh, uh, hmm. which or maybe it's a hummament. So he's a British artist uh, who uh, took this uh, Victorian novel called A Human Document, which I don't think anybody had read in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he does marvelous things. Uh, uh, he doesn't simply uh, erase many of the words and thus create a new narrative, but he also, mm-hmm. uh, the visual uh, decorations of the page with paint and ink and so forth are just absolutely stunning. Uh, Google Tom Phillips Ahumament and you'll come to the website and uh, just you can lose wow. yourself for hours. So I, I'm, I'm interested in that kind of thing. Uh, the Hana Aria uh, comes at the end of uh, one of the chapters, one of the sections, uh, throughout which, um, you know, one of the things that I do in the book is uh, I play a lot with uh, Heidegger and Arendt's actual writings. And one of the things that fascinates me about these two figures is they both wrote poetry. Yes. Uh, and uh, Arendt's poetry, I think, you know, it's pretty conventional. It's not, you know, necessarily like great poetry, mm-hmm. but it does show her, I think, very much part of an intellectual tradition in which one of the things you do is, you know, you, you read Heine and you read Hölderlin and you write poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. she uses that to try to express herself. Uh, Heidegger too wrote uh, poetry. Um, and uh, um, so uh, I, 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 I play in a couple of sections of the book with uh, something called homophonic translation. And homophonic translation is where you take words in a different language than English in this case, and you sound them out. Um, and I don't really know German. I've studied German. <laughs> uh-huh. I can read a little German, mm-hmm. uh, but my pronunciation is terrible. Um, but that's part of the point in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. What you do is you sound out the words, or maybe you listen to a recording, and then you think, what does that sound like in English? Not what does it mean? What does it sound like? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then uh, you transcribe what it sounds like. Um, and so uh, by using these homophonic translations while also having you know, literal translations beside me, I was able to take Heidegger and Arendt's language and kind of deform it or uh, hack it, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would call this. This is hacking. That's um, it. That's it. So this good. section of uh, the book um, is uh, this kind of, uh, it's called, I call it the, uh, the Hana Lieder. Right, so mm-hmm. Hana songs uh, slash red thread. Um, you know, the Hana character in the book gets likened to different uh, figures, right? And uh, in this case, um, the figure is a, a biblical uh, figure. Um, there, uh, um, in this case, um, relating to uh, the story of uh, Rahab the harlot from the book of Joshua, mm-hmm. which you might expect me with my name to take a special interest, mm-hmm. right? And the, you know, all my life as a kid, you know, people were like, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And like, uh, what, uh, who, uh, you know, it's always struck me as kind of ironic that uh, I'm named for a general. Uh, yeah, right. I'm probably yeah. the least general uh, like uh, person. Uh, you don't seem like around. a bellicose guy. No. I'm not a particularly bellicose guy, although I do <laughs> box for exercise. Um, anyway, so uh, the story of Rahab, uh, she is the uh, the harlot 
who is uh, she's kind of like a Mary Magdalene figure mm-hmm. if you want to read it the way a Christian would, mm-hmm. uh, who is spared uh, the you know when the uh, uh, Israelites uh, invade and destroy Jericho, she is spared because she gave shelter to a couple of Israelite spies, mm-hmm. um, and she hung a red thread outside her window uh, to kind oh. of mark that you know this oh, yeah. house oh, yeah. should be spared. Also, kind of like the Passover story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very interested in. Like I, I saw, you know, uh, Hannah Arendt had this kind of ambiguous and ambivalent, you know, she was a refugee, but she was also very critical of the, um, the, the narrative around uh, the state of Israel in some mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she, there's famously, you know, you mentioned Eichmann in Jerusalem. She received a great deal of flack and criticism oh, yeah. in that book yeah. uh, for writing that book and for seeming to... Uh, demonstrate, as her friend Gershom Sholem put it, a lack of love for the Jewish people. He mm-hmm. accused her of that. And she wrote back to him in a famous letter. She responded and said, I have no love for people, for, for, for a people. I love yeah. individuals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love for me is about individuals. People is about politics. But for poli- and, 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 and Rand was, uh, you know, she was a very rigorous, uh, hard-edged thinker. And she thought that Talk, discourse of love had no place in politics. It led mm-hmm. to uh, a disastrous tribalism, in her view. Um, anyway, my goodness, this takes us very far from the Hana leader. The Hana leader uh, largely consists of uh, these are translations of of Heidegger's poems. These are Heidegger's poems um, that um, many of them were addressed to Arendt after the war, huh. right? Uh, they're not really love poems. They're kind of poems expounding his philosophy. Um, but they also, insofar as they do refer to Arendt, you can see like, this is Heidegger again, like he's not really willing to let go uh, of his vision of the very young Arendt, mm-hmm. the young Hannah, the 18 year old, mm-hmm. you know, who he called, you know, his shy Fraulein, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like he, he, he seems to have really been turned on by her uh, demure, uh, innocence, yeah. which, you know, if that was ever real, was long gone mm-hmm. uh, by 1950. Uh, so, um, so I wanted to interrogate those poems. I wanted to interrogate his philosophy. And then I wanted to turn this mutated language uh, and put it into Hannah's voice. So if you read through the section, you'll see that some of the words in the translations are in red. Mm-hmm. And then what I did is I took all the red words and I put them into their own poem. And that's huh. the Hana aria. That's the, uh, that's the aria. So now I can sufficiently prepared, uh, yeah. if I can find it again. Uh, let's see, page 90 something. 92. 92. I can always edit this part. Yep, no worries. Take me a while to find it. <clears throat> Here it is. Hana Arya. You frame sudden valors. Thinking the futile vortex hurts the word. March bared, blues without wine. Their wild jars surrender science. Velt looks, giving gesture, hurt. Rise, bereavement, release nothingness. Ways fear to free the earth. Made then frame, frame wealth, not all. Ash shined 
unframed. Tattle, rendering, fall. Down a chord, divorce God, that sun springs signs. Mode, whores truce. Fur of the friend. Men, we are final. Garden, carbon, error, terror, amend, ichor. Like hand to wealth, sand wreckage in her. Your person designed the will, atones while forcing blindness. H, dice getting vice, always golden light. Voiceless title, hearts, a too bright language. Black horizons arising, lighten the testimony in the sugar of not finding out. Lighting, louding, the stillness of sameness. I mean, that's me like really just letting the language carry me. You yes. know? And I couldn't tell you what that means. And yet there yeah. are like lots of little flickers in there of like exactly. Heideggerian exactly. language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the framing, for example, he talks a lot about in framing and the ways in which we uh, philosophically or you might say ideologically, um, you know, frame uh, the earth and turn it into a world that we can use. But what gets left out of that picture? Mm -hmm. Right. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's where his thought is still interesting and useful to me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. There's so many voices that come in and out of the text. You know, you refer to WB, which I assume is Benjamin, mm -hmm. uh, yes. right? the, the anti-master, you call him? Uh, yes, yes, like Benjamin, that. I think. I, I, yeah, although Adorno and Benjamin, who are kind of, a, you know, the, the Mutt and Jeff of uh, <laughs> uh, kind of pre-war Jewish philosophy, yeah. um, um, they could both be the anti-master. But yes, in this case. Interesting. Okay. Okay. You know, there's a letter to Olson that floats through mm -hmm. here at one point, Charles Olson. Say, yeah. say a bit about uh, how he has <clears throat> influenced you. Uh, so Charles Olson is an American poet who is, you know, kind of a poet's poet. If you know, if you mm. if you know Olson, then he's kind of looms fairly large, but many people don't know him at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was very large. He was six foot eight. He was That's a right. giant of a man. That's right. Um, but Olson, uh, I think, uh, in some ways did the most to kind of pick up the torch of the, the modernist poetry project after World War II. Mm -hmm. um, and he did this in a very literal way, actually. Uh, you know, he, uh, he lived in Washington. He was uh, actually worked for the Roosevelt administration before he became a poet. He was uh, um, really something of a politician, although he had also done interesting uh, graduate work on uh, Herman Melville mm -hmm. and wrote a fascinating little book uh, about uh, Moby Dick called Call Me Ishmael, um, which uh, has become a kind of a fundamental work of poetics. But in any case, he went to visit Ezra Pound yeah. In uh, St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital, <clears throat> Pound, you will recall, uh, was the great modernist poet and impresario of people like T.S. Eliot and James Joyce. Um, but he was also uh, a uh, absolutely besotted with Mussolini, uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rabidly anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. uh, and during the war, while living in Italy, made a series of uh, uh, pro uh, fascist broadcasts on the radio. So when uh, the Allies uh, uh, invaded Italy, uh, occupied Italy, uh, Pound was uh, uh, detained, uh, kept in this prison camp. 
for a number of weeks uh, in a cage exposed to the elements, which produced uh, probably his greatest work of poetry, the Pisan Cantos. It was a camp near Pisa in Italy. But uh, in any case, when he was brought back uh, to the uh, States to be tried for treason, he um, was found not guilty by reason of insanity, which, uh, you know, he was crazy, but not insane. In <laughs> right. okay. um, but it's, you know, it's probably better that he wasn't uh, executed. So he lived in this mental hospital for something like 19 years. Mm, and wow. Olson came to visit him. Mm -hmm. uh, many people came to visit mm -hmm. him. Indeed, uh, Robert Lowell, he, all kinds of people. Yeah. Yes, yes. It was almost mm -hmm. like a salon that, mm -hmm. that he had in this mental hospital. Um, and Olson came because Olson was wrestling with the fact that, you know, Pound had developed this method of poetry, uh, you know, uh, a poem including history, right? That mm -hmm. was Pound's definition of the epic. And Olson was very interested in this, the capacity of the poem, not to simply present a, a little lyric moment, but to be this uh, engine or apparatus or armamentarium for uh, uh, grappling uh, with multiple forces of history and multiple levels, right? This kind mm -hmm. of, uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, kind of multi-level cos uh, cosmic and, uh, uh, historical map, if you will, mm -hmm. right? Um, the poem is as map. So uh, he was uh, he was indebted to Pound, but he was also uh, um, you know condemned uh, completely um, Pound's anti-Semitism and his sympathy toward fascism. Mm -hmm. um, so the visits to uh, visits to Pound and these conversations where he sort of tried to reason with Pound uh, left him with this belief that you know, these techniques were still were salvaging and worth using, but they had to be kind of reimagined and reoriented. And one of the ways Olson tried to do that is he tried to reorient it around the human body uh, hmm. and around the breath. So hmm. Olson's mm -hmm. most famous single text, aside from his poems, is uh, probably uh, an essay, which is really a letter. That was kind of his favorite mode of communication was letters. Um, from 1950, which is you know the same year that Arendt and uh, Heidegger got back in touch, and uh, this um, uh, essay or letter is called a projective verse. Hmm. And in this letter, he lays out this theory. It was a letter to uh, Robert Creeley, I think, um, and uh, they had an intense epistolary dialogue, and uh, about the idea that uh, the measure of the poem should come uh, not from any prescribed form, but from the breath. Hmm. Um, so Olson was trying to create this new poetics that was oriented on all of these different levels uh, on the body, but also like the historical body, right? In terms, you know, he thought a lot about like, you know, his father came from Sweden. So his, he thought he was, he was very interested in immigration and the uh, waves of immigration that had come to this country. Uh, his great work, uh, his very, 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 very long uh, epic poem, uh, unfinished as is the style, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, is uh, the Maximus poems, uh, in which he created this persona for himself called Maximus, who was uh, some kind of Greek orator, I believe, um, and uh, you know, uh, and tried to kind of present in this multi-layered, multi-phasic way the history of Gloucester, Massachusetts which was his adopted hometown. Mm -hmm. um, 
So Olson's uh, a very important figure, I think, for anyone who still is interested in using poetry to try to take the measure of, of a space that is historical, but also cosmological, but also personal, and to try to do that all at the same time um, in language. Um, so Olson's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's been an important figure to me. Uh, He's problematic in his own ways. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, his, uh, he was a very, uh, he had a very masterful personality uh, mm -hmm. to borrow that word from my title. Um, so even though he saw himself as a force for liberation uh, in some ways, I think he had a kind of a, an authoritarian personality himself that mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, created some problems for him. But in any case, um, yeah. Um, uh, and very specifically, one of the things that interested me about Olson was, uh, you know, he was like many people, uh, you know, deeply shaken by uh, the Holocaust. Um, he has a fairly early poem he wrote called uh, La Preface, um, which is uh, this consideration of, you know, after the catastrophe of the war and the Holocaust and the bomb, what do we do? And one of the voices, because he brings many voices into his writing too, is uh, the voice of a, uh, of a Buchenwald survivor. So Olson's appropriation of that Jewish voice, a little bit like Sylvia Platt's um, uh, into the poem, um, kind of, I think that was the sliver that got me the idea of having uh, my mutating Hannah character uh, address Olson as a kind of a second master on the way to her apotheosis is Hannah Furiosa, because in my vision of the book, Hannah transforms, evolves, or mutates from the shy Fraulein <laughs> to the, uh, the bold political thinker to, uh, the, to the thinker of natality and mm -hmm. of uh, what she called love for the world, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, it's, it's my version of the much pithier and more beautiful line of, uh, I think it's Adam Zagajewski's uh, poem, try to praise the mutilated world. Uh, mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's a sentiment that uh, Arendt mm -hmm. might have agreed with. Lovely, lovely, that's good, that's good. Let, let's talk about uh, the new book and what, what possessed you to write a novel? <laughs> what indeed? Um, well- um, your, 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 I, second, your second novel, I guess. It is my <laughs> second novel, yes. Um, I mean, I've always wanted to be a novelist. I'd always loved novels. Uh, I loved losing myself in novels. Mm -hmm. And I loved the idea of, you know, uh, Henry James has his famous uh, diss. I think he's talking about historical novels, but just before he called it, he called it uh, the loose baggy monster. Yeah. Um, and I've always actually kind of loved that idea. I liked the idea of a book that you could just kind of throw everything into. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, um, and I just became fascinated, also just the sheer difficulty of the forum, you know, I mean, I'm somebody who likes to break his head against hmm. difficult things, whether it's, you know, the, the Maximus poems, or the virtually impossible task of uh, writing a novel. Um, and uh, anyway, when I started writing fiction, I mean, it was actually after a long period of having sworn off fiction, I had convinced myself that uh, it was impossible to write fiction that wasn't in some way uh, dishonest, that wasn't mm -hmm. uh, imposing more order on life and on language than either quite warranted, right? 
Um, but I think I was just scared, honestly, <laughs> of uh, taking on the demands of narrative, which are quite demanding. Yeah, uh, yeah. So my first novel, A Beautiful Soul in American Elegy, um, it's really a, a poet's novel, as I think of it, in the sense that you can, and I, almost like uh, that book for me, like it's, 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 it's a poet, the story of that, the kind of subtext of it is a poet trying to turn himself into a novelist, trying to find a story that will bear the weight of, in that case, um, this myth I had built in my own mind of my mother, you know, the survivor, uh, the writer, she was a poet herself, uh, the intellectual who spoke many languages, but also the depressive, uh, you know, the woman who couldn't get out of bed some mornings, uh, the woman who would sometimes seem intensely curious about me and then at other times um, almost indifferent to me. I mean, it was, it was not easy being Judith Corey's son, um, though I, I loved her desperately. And she died young. Uh, she was 49 years old. I was 21 oh, years old. Oh. And we never got to have the kinds of conversations mm -hmm. um, that I'd hoped we'd have. So um, that novel is my conversation or one of my types of conversation with my mother. I try to I conjure her as this character I call M um, and uh, kind of pursue her in, the, in, 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 in female guise because the narrator of the novel, not the, the, the heroine of the novel, Ruth, uh, is a daughter, not a son. Um, anyway, that's the first novel. And it's a kind of a uh, neo-noir. Uh, I'm still very fond of it. I'm still very fond of that book. Uh, the new book uh, was me trying to do for my father, in a <laughs> sense, what I'd done for my mother. And because uh, I was somebody who, um, you know, in the kind of private myth that I had created to enable myself to function as an artist, my mother always loomed very large. And my father was kind of an afterthought. You know, because my mother was, in my mind at least, this tragic figure, this poet, this kind of unacknowledged genius. Who knows if she was any of these things? But that's the mythic mother in my mind. And my father seemed like this kind of happy-go-lucky, you know, um, uh, very, uh, you know, very, very embodied. You know, my mother was very mental, very mental creature, and my father was, um, uh, and, and you know, athletic and loved to travel and loved food and just had tremendous uh, gusto for life. Um, and I always thought they were kind of an odd pairing, you know, mm -hmm. like I couldn't quite understand um, how that marriage worked or if it worked. So um, that novel began as um, actually uh, something more of a travel narrative mm -hmm. because back in 2011, I want to say, um, I, um, went on this, uh, for me, fairly long journey, almost a month, uh, to uh, Europe and also uh, to uh, Morocco. Hmm. Um, the Morocco part was, uh, I went there to attend uh, my first ever uh, European Beat Studies Network conference. <laughs> um, and I'm not really a scholar of the beats, yeah. um, <clears throat> but um, first of all, my friend Davis Schneiderman is, uh, he's a colleague of mine at Lake Forest College and he is a, a William S. Burroughs scholar. Uh -huh. so I've heard a lot about Burroughs from him over the years. And this uh, conference was taking place, uh, for, it was uh, for the, to honor uh, Burroughs' 100th birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, he died a few years before in Tangier where he yeah. spent some crucial years uh, writing Naked Lunch, 
right? Which yep. is the book that really made Burroughs Burroughs. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I was doing there. And I kind of built into that trip. I see. Um, some other places. Um, it, it is a bit of a travelogue, which is wonderful. And, 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 and you really have Paul Bowles. There's all kinds of. Yeah. I, well, I, I read the book. Literary history. <clears throat> there's all kinds of fathers and grandfathers in the book, most yes. of them literary and, yeah. you know, one of them actual. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, I wrote this. I wrote this travelogue, and I also was writing about an, a different trip I took to uh, Berlin. I spent a few weeks in Berlin, and that was a, that was a different period. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a city with which I have long been fascinated. And uh, you know, I, I had a great grandmother who lived there until you know, but she was gassed. You know, so there's that kind of painful connection to the city. Um, and at the same time, like you know, it's it's. It's uh, it's an amazing city for so many reasons. I mean, it's uh, it's much more like New York <laughs> than <laughs> any other European city I've been to, and that it feels like a living. It's, it doesn't have that museum quality that like Paris or London have. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's also a city where you literally can't walk, you know, uh, ten feet without tripping over some reminder of the war or the Holocaust. Right. Yeah. They've got these uh, bricks where they tell you, like, you know, such and such Jewish person lived here. And was mm. deported. Wow. wow. Um, mm. So you know, um, it's far from perfect, but uh, especially I think compared with this country, the Germans mm -hmm. I think have done a remarkable job of, and they have a you know one of those incredibly long German words for this, uh, coming to terms with the past. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway. Um, so I wrote this travelogue, and I wasn't really sure what to do with it. It didn't quite seem like a novel. Um, and then I started writing for reasons I, that I didn't really fully understand, um, these sections in which I was imagining uh, my parents' meeting yes. and their courtship in yes. 1960s New York. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't understand what the two things had to do with each other. I was pure intuition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was working, uh, I have a little newsletter, a little, a little sub stack I send out, and I was working on uh, an issue this morning, and I was just writing about some things I've been reading. And one of them is uh, 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 the autobiography of Ingmar Bergman, the uh, director. Mm -hmm. And this led me down a little rabbit hole where I was like, you know, thinking about like a Bergman film that had meant a great deal to me. And I remembered it, he didn't actually direct this one, he wrote it, but uh, mm -hmm. Billy August directed it. It came out in 1992, mm -hmm. the year my mother died. And I saw it in the theater in New York City. Uh, the English title is The Best Intentions. And it's a film, uh, it's a beautiful film really? about, it's about Bergman's parents. It's about Bergman's parents and their meeting and they're getting married. Um, and it's a very beautiful film, but it's, it's full of pain and pathos. If you know anything about Bergman's life or if you've seen like, for example, Fanny and Alexander, which is a much better known mm -hmm. uh, autobiographical Bergman film, because, uh, you know, by his own account, his his childhood and his you know his parents' marriage was just hell on earth, uh, just miserable people who uh, racked by all kinds of dark psychological forces they didn't understand. Mm. Bergman's father was a Lutheran minister, uh, you know, and 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 very you know uh, successful but very tormented. Uh, his mother was a very unhappy being married to him. Um, so I was really moved by this to kind of remember this film in which Bergman shows such compassion and love for his parents as people, <laughs> you know, and the film ends with his own birth. So 
I had completely forgotten this. But today, just today, thinking about that film, I realized that the seed may have been planted all those years ago, you know, watching this oh. film, the year my mother died, a desire to explore <clears throat> and understand, you know, again, like I said, things are so mysterious to me. And one of the things that's most mysterious to me is that's mysterious to everybody. Again, why am I here? How did I get here? Um, and not just how I personally got here, um, but uh, what kind of historical forces produced me and the world that you know, we all live in right now, which is so very, very far from what seemed like the, the promise that yeah. was made and in some ways kept to my boomer parents. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, so the last critical component that turned what was really just a pile of disconnected pages into a novel um, was a terrible thing that happened to my father. Uh, he had retired uh, just a couple of years before. This was back in 2017. He was retired. He was traveling. You know, uh, he had been remarried for many years. He was very happy. Um, and uh, then when he was visiting my sister in California, uh, he got into her car one morning intending to go get coffee and, mm -hmm. you know, mishandled the gears and the, the car was parked on the edge of a small cliff and the car went over the cliff. And oh. uh, he was critically injured broke pretty much, you know, he broke his neck, he broke his back, he broke his ribs. And they, oh, they saved wow. his life. Mm -hmm. They saved his life, but he was never the same. Uh, yeah. he, and and he, 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 never, he never walked again. Um, and his spirit, his spirit was gone. It was mm -hmm. just gone. Mm -hmm. And he lived on for another year and, 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 and a couple months, but he got an infection while during uh, that forced a hospital stay. And they had to put him on a ventilator and he was ready to go. And he said, you know, he communicated that he didn't want to be here anymore. Anyway, well, very well, terrible thing. Yeah, very terrible yeah. thing. Uh, so shocking and so many lays. Um, and to see like the, my, my father who had always been this figure of tremendous vitality, but also again, in my mythic mind, not the actual man, in my mm -hmm. mythic mind, a little obtuse. A little mm -hmm. distracted, a little mm -hmm. self-involved, a little too preoccupied with <clears throat> the pleasures of the day, uh, and uh, extremely intelligent, but not an intellectual in the way my mother had been, not bookish in the way my mother had been. I had trouble seeing my father and myself. Mm -hmm. um, but after this accident, and then after his death, I realized that, of course, uh, he was in me, and I wanted to, um, I don't know, I wanted to love him better. Yeah. So that's what this novel became was, an, uh, you know, and the book is also the main character who is basically me um, is uh, the way that the frame, the narrative is set up is having the, the narrator leaves at just the moment this accident has taken place. Mm -hmm. uh, like he, he can't face it. Uh, uh, he can't face, um, you know, what, what happened to his father. He can't face caring for his father. He can't face uh, his own mortality which this opens the door to, right? Um, I mean, uh, it's, it's a hell of a thing to lose your parents. You know, there's no one between me and eternity now. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, so he goes to uh, Europe and on a quest for these other fathers, Burroughs being one of them, uh, these literary fathers trying mm -hmm. to kind of write his way into some new kind of myth. And then he gets into this kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> comic story about this 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 film that's going to somehow prove that Burroughs and yeah. uh 
you know, uh, Susan Sontag and uh, Beckett were the, all together. The CIA get involved suddenly. Yeah, the CIA get involved. <laughs> it gets a little wacky. You know, it's a little, a little bit of my tribute to Harry Matthews there. I don't know if you know Harry Matthews, the writer, but uh, he was an American involved with the Ulipo group. And he has a great, uh, a great comic novel called My Life in CIA, uh, <laughs> which is kind of an autofictional novel in which uh, he is mistaken for a CIA agent, kind of uses that to get girls, Wonderful. and then it becomes it Wonderful. becomes all too real. Great. Anyway, Great. <clears throat> so that's the novel. Um, it's a, a shaggy dog story about grief. That's, yes. that's what I call it. Yes. It, it, it has a wonderful kaleidoscopic quality go, going between not only the, the somber reflections on your father and his pain and your sense of not being there and the phone calls from your sister and all of that, but also this, I, I don't know that I've ever seen this before, this trying to recreate the courtship back in 60s New York and, and all of that. And then the other thing that somehow works is that you, you have a wonderful comic touch. And I wanna ask, ask you to read it. It's about a page or so with the, the conversation with Mr. Ahmed <laughs> in the cafe. Um, there's this kind of a subplot about a film. There's a there's a, a, a copy of a film of, of Samuel Beckett and Burroughs in conversation, which doesn't sound like it is very important except to a small number of people, but somehow the CIA supposedly yeah. have an interest yeah. in this film. And Mr. Ahmed, you suspect his, or the character uh, has right. suspects has something to do with this. So on 256, uh, yeah. There's a little conversation with Mr. Ahmed in the cafe and where the subject of poetry unexpectedly comes up and toward the bottom there, maybe you could begin with um, where Mr. Ahmed mercifully interrupts the paranoid train of my thoughts. Start there? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Mr. Ahmed mercifully interrupts the paranoid train of my thoughts. You are staying long in Morocco? No, not long. The conference ends tomorrow, tonight, in fact. Pity, I have not read your Burroughs, but I have heard some things about him. What would you say I should read if I wanted to be introduced? Um, he is a novelist, yes? Like you? Uh, no, not like me. I'm a, I write poetry. <laughs> I say this wincingly. Never admit you're a poet to the person you sit next to on an airplane <laughs> or bump into at a cocktail party. But it turns out that Carlo was right. Mr. Ahmed's eyebrows shoot up toward his hairline, and he regards me with a look of what I can only describe as deep respect. A poet, he repeats. Wonderful. I dip my head to hide my shame. Mr. Ahmed bows his own head. I would be very pleased to hear some of it, if that isn't too much to ask. No, of course, I mean, that's kind of you, but I couldn't. Mr. Ahmed's look of disappointment is so apparently sincere that I feel even more deeply ashamed. I literally couldn't, I explain. <laughs> I don't have anything on me. I'm not holding, I don't say. I don't memorize it or anything. Mr. Ahmed nods, but the look of disappointment continues to crease his face for a moment. Then he lifts his eyes to the canopy of the cafe, clears his expression and chants. I have no name. I am but two days old. What shall I call thee? I happy am. Joy is my name. Sweet joy befall thee. And then one more little bit there when it comes back. Sure. 
Mr. Ahmed opens his eyes and smiles and nods to me, like a prompter, as though expecting me to finish the poem. But I can only return to him an idiot version of his smile. He shrugs slightly and closes his eyes again. Pretty joy, sweet joy, but two days old. Sweet joy, I call thee. Thou dost smile, I sing the while. Sweet joy, befall me. The waiter. That's it. Okay. That's good. That's good. Wonderful. Wonderful. I was not expecting that. No, I, I, I hope you do more and, and play with that tone a bit. I thought you pulled it off beautifully. Your your ear was very keen. You know, I thought. Thank lovely. You. Lovely. Um, yeah, you, um, other lines, I want to pull out something you said. Uh, I'll, I'll read this back on 238 about what you were trying to do in the book with these memories. <clears throat> You say in the middle of the page, the nagging notion that there's something within us unexpressed by words, or worse, that something is deformed by them as a childhood photograph comes to obliterate and replace the event it, immemorial, it memorializes, or how the stories your parents repeat about you render you helpless to resist them, to be defined by them. Life and language, warring siblings, the pretty one and the smart one, or is it the other way around? <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, that's pretty Wonderful. good. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's Who wrote that? Yeah, no, great um, <laughs> Yeah, well, no, I think uh, this gets very close to, um, you know, this, this theme, this feeling I have that uh, there are these mysterious meanings and patterns behind ordinary behavior, mm -hmm. uh, things people say without thinking about it. Um, you know, I'm somebody who, for whatever reason, maybe it's a touch of neurodivergence, I don't know, but I, I'm not always able to tell what's important from what's not. Mm -hmm. And so everything becomes important. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can lead me, you know, at its worst into paranoid places. Um, but at its best, it, uh, you know, means that, uh, things are fresher to me sometimes and I'm yes. able to kind of see things that, uh, might elude um, other people, or at least me in other moods. And, uh, but yeah, this, this preoccupation, I mean, um, I, I do feel like, like anybody, I uh, emerge from this welter of memories um, that, you know, when I think hard about them, they're actually photos and other people's stories. Mm -hmm. And very, mm -hmm. very few of them can I really lay claim to them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't have very many Proustian you know, Madeleines in my life. Yes. I actually am catapulted back into the past where the past comes alive. Um, you know, yeah, th this book is very much, you know, in some ways, uh, uh, um, you know, my kind of like a poor man's Proust. Um, yeah. Where uh, I feel uh, the, uh, the inability uh, to recall <clears throat> and as a result, the impulse to make something up, <laughs> which uh, is yes. why it's a novel. But Bruce comes up um, and you, you have a reflection on Cambrai. If you would read, and, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. At the end of uh, page 350, you ask this question about does the emotional climate scale? Hmm. Yes. That paragraph uh, over and finishes on the next page. Could you read that? <clears throat> does the emotional climate scale, which is a real thing, by the way, does the emotional climate scale have any means of registering an uptake in sleepless nights, persistent and unnameable anxieties, migraine headaches, feelings of despair, 
the need to read certain poems over and over again so that fragmentary lines occur when you least expect them, like low, dishonest decade. Probably it does. There is nothing that can't be quantified. There is nothing in our experience so foreign that it can't be metabolized and made part of ourselves, except perhaps the gap in experience itself. I picture Proust's Cambrai in reverse, a provincial town folding itself up like a circus tent and disappearing beneath the surface of a steaming cup of tea gone undrunk by its author, who never rediscovers his childhood, who never becomes an author at all. Fantastic. That's great. Just great. Yep. This, this is the great dread in the back of all of us bookish people's minds, yeah. right? The idea that this is this is the new world. <laughs> yeah. No more cumbrace. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I wonder <clears throat> about, uh, you know, the kids, the kids today. I actually am saying that. You do um, say that. But, but, you know, whose every moment is documented and archived. Um, you know, when I went to college, I was able to leave my high school persona behind. Uh, can you do that now? Uh, can you ever leave behind uh, the uh, uh, hmm. sort of digital avatar we're all dragging behind hmm. us? Uh, hmm. That's one version of, you know, I mean, there's such a thing as too much memory, perhaps, Yeah. Um, that uh, uh, makes it uh, less possible for us to imagine um, other selves, other lives, um, other ways of living together, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is where the kind of utopian element of uh, yes. memory comes in. You have a line uh, that you fell into language and couldn't climb out again. <laughs> That's true. C'est moi, c'est moi, you know? Um, very yeah, good, yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah wonderful. Yeah. Josh Corey, what a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for this good work. I, I should pause for one second and ask you what is in the oven, literally speaking? Oh, gosh. Well, um... I mean, uh, aside from my uh, Substack newsletter, where I mostly amuse myself talking about things that I'm reading, uh -huh. uh, including the uh, Patrick O'Brien series of historical novels, uh -huh. yes. uh, with which I am obsessed. Yes. Um, but, um, you know, I have a couple of irons in the fire. Um, uh, I have another, uh, well, I have several science fiction novels um, that I uh, mm. uh, have written, but um, have yet to kind of figure out the best avenue to uh, publish them in the world. Hmm. Um, so this is me kind of taking uh, my uh, um, my desire to kind of do something epic, you know, in a more kind of populist entertaining mode, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, so I've written this series of novels about a uh, an artificial island created by a sort of Elon Musk type uh, hmm. to ride out climate change. Yep. Uh, the, the moral consequences of this are are profound and sometimes grimly comic. Um, so that's uh, one project I'm hoping to see uh, into fruition. Mm -hmm. um, I have another long gestating project uh, inspired by the life uh, of my cousin, Barney Ross. Uh, this was my uh, paternal grandmother's first cousin. So it's a fairly distant connection, but in the 1920s and 30s, Barney lived here in Chicago. He was born Dove Bear Rosofsky. Uh, his father was murdered in a holdup when he was 14 years old, um, and he had to kind of fend for himself in Al Capone's Chicago. Uh, mm -hmm. And he worked for Capone briefly, although what he may have done for him is, 
is uh, you know a little ambiguous in the mm -hmm. record. Uh, he became a boxer, and uh, even though he was not a natural fighter, uh, he was quick and he was smart, and uh, he began to win bout after bout. And he uh, was a lightweight champion of the world, uh, very very famous. Huh. Uh, the only more famous Jewish boxer is a guy named Benny Leonard. <laughs> so I've been fascinated by my connection, you know, as a you know, uh, non-bellicose person, I've just uh -huh. been fascinated all my life that I'm related to this man uh, who achieved this glory through violence um, and who very much presented himself to as a Jew, as a fighting yeah, Jew, yeah, yeah. countering the stereotype of, you know, Jews as being kind of bookish and non-combative. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a Marine during World War II, uh, fought in Guadalcanal, uh, got the Silver Star for oh, uh, defending... Oh. Uh, his foxhole from a, you know, an entire Japanese uh, you know, squad completely you know, single-handedly. Um, just a remarkable guy. He was a drug addict after that. Uh, and the, the kicker for me, the, what, what really inspired the idea, you know, I've, I've tried to write about Barney before. I wrote a series of poems about him years ago. And I have an essay I wrote online that kind of uh, tries to consider my father's accident and Barney's history and my history as a mm -hmm. kind of an exploration of the Jewish male body. Mm -hmm. uh, the vulnerability and strength of the Jewish male body. Um, but uh, he was lifelong friends with Jack Ruby, uh, the guy who uh, wow. killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he mm -hmm. uh, was a character witness at uh, Ruby's trial. So I've been picking away at a new novel uh, about that friendship hmm. uh, and uh, about how it is that these two uh, guys from, you know, the sort of, you know, hard scrabble ghetto chicago yeah. both found both found a kind of uh fame uh through violence um you know one of them uh well one famous one infamous mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and and you know what is a what what is the line that separates them uh, well well so that's uh that's but uh it's it's proceeding very slowly i'm still figuring out the form i want that to take yes yes that sounds wildly entertaining that sounds good <laughs> i hope so i hope so that's the idea great josh a pleasure um thank you for joining us i i hope uh readers enjoy this ramble in all kinds of different directions which is exactly what i was hoping would happen and a pleasure to uh connect with you Thank you, Elias. It's uh, thank you for your hospitality, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Super great. Thanks a lot.